So the story so far is that Jesus Christ has come down to earth and he's started to demonstrate his authority uh, through his teaching by healing the sick. And uh, we've just seen in the previous chapter uh, stories of Jesus healing. He heals a leper. He heals a paralyzed man. And while this is happening as well, he also asks people to come and follow him. He calls people out of obscurity and he says, come, follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. Jesus is drawing in crowds more and more. People are coming to him to see what he can do. But he knows that his mission is to show the world that he is the son of God. Not just a healer or someone who can predict the future. Not just a good motivational speaker, but the Son of God. And in our passage today, Jesus calls those who will be his closest friends on earth, he calls them into community, into friendship. And um, whether we like it or not, maybe we're the most introverted type of introvert, maybe we're the most extroverted type of extrovert, we are designed to be in community. We're designed to be part of something bigger, part of a bigger picture. We see that in society through social media. Anyone who's got Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, we all know that we want to have friends on Facebook, don't we? We want to have followers on Instagram, followers on Twitter for the 10 people that still use Twitter. There you go, there's one. We see this as well. We see this as well in in the culture of our time as well, where we have the hashtag squad goals or the hashtag friendship goals. We want to be part of the best squad. We want to be part of the in crowd, the place where we can belong. We also see friendship in the need uh, for pop culture. Every single movie at the moment, every single celebrity is part of a wider connected group of people. Uh, Whether they're part of the Justice League, the Avengers Initiative, the Fast and Furious family, the world tells us that we work better together. We are better connected. And to be honest, I just want to show you a couple of uh, squads that I've joined recently. Uh, So these are my squads that I'm in. There we are. There's me in Pitch Perfect. Uh, There's me in the Avengers. Obviously Iron Man, because Iron Man is the best. Uh, And the next one, yeah, One Direction. Like, see, some of these ones are like, I'm just putting them for fun, but genuinely, a dream would be to be in One Direction. But there we go. Um, Jill's very worried about that now. Um, But in this passage, we see Jesus assembling his own group of people together, his group of friends, his most trusted advisors. And these men, they're not just part of his group, they're not just part of the selfies, but they follow him to the darkest moment of history where he uh, was nailed to the cross. And they followed him to when he was crucified and when he was resurrected. They were the catalysts for the local church, the Christian message, which is still alive today. So why did they follow him? What things did Jesus give them that meant that they would follow him to the ends of the earth, to the darkest moments in time? In this passage, we see three things that Jesus gives us, gives his disciples, and he gives these principles and values to us today that we can apply to our lives. And they are vital for us for living out our lives. They are vital for us as a church if we want to carry on our mission and be part of playing a, writing a new future for the church in Scotland. So I'm going to read Mark 3, verses 13 to 19. Uh, they should appear on screen behind me. It says this. 
And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. They were Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Beorgenes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Maybe I just want to take a a brief moment just to pray over that passage. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our for your word. We thank you for the times that we can share together and open up your word and learn from you. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you come now? Would you speak to each one of us, whether we're very close to you or far away? Would you show us what this means to us in our lives? Amen. So, from this passage, there are three things that Jesus gives his disciples. The first thing he gives his disciples is intimacy. So Jesus has been busy in his earthly ministry. Everywhere he goes, crowds are following him. And we see that directly before this passage where he has to withdraw from the crowd. He has to go into the Sea of Galilee because there's too many people. There's too many people crowding around. And after this, he goes up onto a mountain. Now, if you're thinking like me, you might think, oh, he's going onto a mountain to be, um, get away from the crowds, to maybe just seek some peace and quiet. But really, he has chosen this moment to appoint his disciples, to appoint his 12 trusted friends. We see this in the first two verses we read. It said, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they might be with him. A few years ago, uh, I was looking for a job, and um, me and my mate, we decided that we were going to go around Aberdeen. We were going to start at like half eight in the morning and go until half six at night, armed with our CVs and any application forms that we could go find, and go around every single place that looked like they needed help, that looked like they needed someone to be employed by their services. Uh, That was me and my friend Steve. And uh, we took our CVs and all day we went round and we gave our CVs to pretty much every uh, place you can think of in Aberdeen. And um, we were confident we would get a job. And um, it started that after maybe a couple of days, I'd get some mail through the the door. I'd be very excited. I was like, oh, this could be a potential job offer or a potential interview opportunity. And um, I got a few of these, and some of them were like, yes, we'd love to interview you. And others were like, no, uh, you're not suitable for this job. One in particular that stays with me, that maybe to an extent has haunted me uh, up until this point, was I got a reply. And it was from the Disney store in the Bon Accord Center. And I was like, oh, well, you know, never know. I could be uh, a Disney employee. That might be quite fun. And uh, it was a lovely envelope. It was embossed. It had the Mickey ears on the outside. Uh, and I opened the envelope. And in it was a, like a lovely handcrafted note that said the following. 
Dear Mr. Elder, thank you for your application to be a Disney Store sales assistant. Unfortunately, reading your CV, it is clear that you don't have the Disney magic. <laughs> keep, keep dreaming, Team Disney. <sighs> Harshy? I mean, I might not know all of the Disney things, but you don't have the Disney magic. Oh, it burnt so deep. Anyway, I did eventually get a job, and I, I went to the interview, and I answered all those normal interview questions that you got, and I was given the job. And the point is that this moment in time isn't a normal job interview. The disciples aren't going onto that mountain, and Jesus turns to them and says, So, uh, where do you see yourself in five years' time? Or, uh, are you a good team player? It's not like Lord Sugar picking his apprentice or firing as many people as possible. But it's about friendship. Jesus picked these people, these men, because he desired them. He wanted to be with them. Jesus wanted them to follow him, to have friendship for who they were. Not what they could achieve, not what their business plan was, but he loved them first and foremost. That's why he called them. And for those of us who are Christians today, that's why he called us, because he loved us first. Not because of anything that we've done, but because he loves us first. And maybe you're exploring, maybe you're visiting. And that is the truth of the Christian message, that Jesus loved you first, no matter what. This type of friendship is something that many of us are searching for, but we often can't achieve. I've said earlier, we're more connected than ever but also we can be more isolated and lonely as well. We have those Facebook friends, but when we're in the middle of a crisis, which one of those can we rely on? We're desperate for intimacy, and often we search for intimacy in the physical avenues, but ultimately that doesn't satisfy. We see the hurt and terrible scourge of addiction all around us. The depersonalization of sex through the porn industry and the corrupt nature of power in our world currently through all these allegations that are cropping up in the entertainment industry and beyond. All of these things, they're looking for intimacy. Something we all crave, yet so hard to grasp. Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen, once said this, he said, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. Success has brought me world idolization and millions of pounds, but it's prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. That's what Jesus gives. He gives his disciples that intimacy, that loving ongoing relationship. Let's see how he treats his disciples. These are 12 strangers completely out of their depth. But in John 13 Jesus comes to them and he washes the disciples' feet. The smelly feet of these people that have been walking for ages, walking for days. He kneels down. He puts some fairy liquid in a bowl with some water. And he washes their feet. In John 20, 
we see how he interacts with uh, one of the disciples called Thomas, who forever in history is known as Doubting Thomas, which is a bit of a shame for him, but that was because he didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. He said, I want to see the scars, the nails on his hands, and then I'll believe. And Jesus appears to Thomas, and he lovingly shows him, and he says, these are the scars in my hands. This is where the nails were. John 21, uh, Peter, who is one of the lead uh, disciples, really, he's one of the kind of top three disciples. He was uh, loyal to Jesus, and he said, I'd do anything for you, Jesus. And then as Jesus has been taken to be hung on a cross, three times, people are like, don't you know him? He's like, no, never, ever met him in our life. I don't know him. He betrays him three times. Jesus, later when he comes back, he restores Peter. Three times he's betrayed. Three times Jesus forgives him. And ultimately, he shows the ultimate act of friendship by sacrificing himself, by dying on the cross, by taking the disciples' sin and their shame on himself, rising again three days later. So death was defeated and intimacy was restored. Said in John 15, no greater act of the love is this for someone to lay down their life for one's friends. That's what Jesus did for the disciples. That's what he did for you and me. That's the gift that he gives, that intimacy that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine. Jesus gives the disciples intimacy and relationship with him, he also gives them connectedness. If we look at these disciples, uh, we've seen the names up on the screen. They are a ragtag bunch of people. They're they're a bit of a bunch of misfits, to be honest. They're from different walks of life, uh, and they all have their own flaws and weaknesses. So Peter, he was hot-headed. He was impulsive. James and John, they were two brothers. They were judgmental. They also secretly asked Jesus, like, You know, when we get to heaven, can we get the best seats beside you? Can we do that? They were looking out for their own selves. There was Matthew. He was a tax collector. So at the time, uh, he would have been probably one of the most despised Jews in the nation because he was friendly with the Romans and the Romans were taxing uh, the people of Israel, the Jews. And then he was profiting. He was benefiting from that. So you have Matthew there, but on the other side, you have this guy called Simon. Now, Simon uh, was known as Simon the Zealot. And uh, there is a group of people, a group of revolutionaries at the time that were called the Zealots. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to overthrow the Romans. So Simon is totally anti anything Roman. And Matthew is like best buds with the Romans. So them being in a room together, that would have been interesting. And then you have Judas... Judas, who we've all heard about before, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which is about five weeks' wages in those times. And I think about this, and maybe I go a bit modern with this. I think about what's the WhatsApp group chat going to be like with those 12 disciples? Think about it. You've got Simon on one side, and he's like, oh, down with the Romans. And then Matthew's like, no, 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 let's keep the Romans. I think there'll be multiple whatsapp groups with just one person out of that group so they could talk about that person it's the non-peter group it's the non-simon group it would be crazy jesus would be like guys just get on together what's going on 
But the point is, we can often picture these disciples as like a holier-than-thou group of people who could do no wrong. But we see, when we read the Bible, that they're normal people like you and me. They mess up, they make mistakes, but Jesus still used them. And isn't that amazing? That the first examples of what it means to be a follower of Jesus are 12 ordinary guys who messed up all the time. Not 12 superhuman, holier-than-thou people who could do no wrong, but people that we could relate to. Was Jesus looking for perfect people? No. Was he looking for superhumans who could do everything? No. Was he looking for people who followed his heart, who were real, authentic, made mistakes, and got back up? Yes, yes, yes. And that should be the picture of the church. Abigail Van Buren said, The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And Nicky Gumbel said, Church is not an organization you join. It's a family where you belong, a home where you are loved, and a hospital where you are find healing. If you are visiting today, you might think that church is a group of perfect people. Can I encourage you? That couldn't be further from the truth. Hopefully you'll have recognized that in me already for speaking for 10 minutes. That couldn't be further from the truth. And if you've ever felt unwelcome or not good enough in church, I just want to say that we're sorry. That is human weakness, and that's not what Jesus wants for you. We aren't perfect, but we are living for the perfect one that connected us together, Jesus Christ. One of my favorite films is a film called Moneyball. Has anyone seen Moneyball? I was like, yes, Buzz, you and me. Great film. Uh, it's one of those films I often say it's one of my favorite films because it's a film that not many people have ever seen. And um, it combines two of my passions. It combines movies and sport. Uh, so I'm happy if it's got those two things in it. And uh, it's a film based on baseball. And uh, it actually makes baseball exciting because I've been to a baseball game It was very boring, but watching Moneyball, I really enjoyed it. And um, it follows this character called Billy Bean, who is played by Brad Pitt. And uh, he manages this team called the Oakland A's, and uh, they are a struggling baseball team. And we pick up the story where they just lost their three star players to other teams. And they're trying to, um, I suppose, recruit other players so that they can uh, be better and win. And Billy Bean, when he's negotiating things, he comes across uh, this idea of buying players based on their statistics, not their athletic ability. And um, the coaching team and the scouts are really skeptical about this. As the guys he starts buying, he starts picking, they're unorthodox, um, they're maybe past their prime, they're maybe a bit overweight, they're maybe overlooked. But the statistics show that they do better than some of the star players. So the season doesn't start well, but eventually uh, the team starts to click. And the Oakland A's win 20 games in a row, which doesn't maybe sound like much, but at the time was a league record uh, for baseball. And um, after the season ends, Billy Bean is approached by the Boston Red Sox. And um, he's offered to manage this team 
using this method of picking the people of the statistics, maybe the ones that are overlooked, but the ones that make up a good working team. He declines that offer, but two years later, the Red Sox win the World Series using that exact method. And that was the first time that they'd won the World Series in 86 years. His method, or the method he used, turned baseball on its head. People stopped looking at those star players and started looking at all those team players. And the point is that the disciples were a bunch of misfits that turned the world on its head. You wouldn't look twice at those disciples. But it says in Acts 17 that what they were doing was turning the world upside down. We are meant to be connected to one another. Jesus gives the disciples one another to be connected, to follow on, and to share life together. And a couple of the ways that we do that in this church to share life, to be connected, is to join a small group, of which there are many you can join. And I would urge you, if you're not part of a small group, maybe you're visiting and want to come along to one, you'd be so welcome. And also to serve on a Sunday morning. Jesus gives the disciples intimacy, he gives them connectedness, and finally he gives them empowerment. It says in Mark 3, 14 to 15, he appointed the twelve so they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority. After Jesus has called them, he sends them out. He says, go, do my work. Go and follow. Go do likewise. He didn't just want his followers to do nothing, to be his minions, but he wanted them to come alive, to live life to the full, to be empowered to own this life for themselves. Following Jesus doesn't mean that we're restricted by rules, but it gives the disciples purpose and meaning. I read about um, this guy called Bob Chapman, who was a CEO in America, uh, who'd become a very successful businessman for turning businesses around that were failing. And um, the main reason, or the main kind of secret to his success was that rather than uh, coming into the first meeting uh, with this new business he was taking over and saying, this is what I'm going to do, he would sit down with various different employees and he'd listen to them. He'd find out, what is it like to work for this company? And often the example is the same. This particular example was a a factory, a manufacturing company. And um, a lot of the people said that they didn't have any freedom. They had two sets of employees. There were the factory workers and there were the office workers. And the factory workers said to him, it's like, we are controlled by a bell where we punch in and we punch out every day. We can't take breaks when we want. We can't go for coffee when we want. We have to be restricted by this bell. The office workers, however, they are trusted that they can go for a coffee. They can go for a break whenever they want. And what Bob Chapman did as his first role as CEO of this new company was that he brought down the clocks. He brought down the bells. The spare tools that were in locked cages, he took away those cages. And he said, we trust you. We have empathy for you. and We believe in you. The company became like a family. People cared for one another and they cared for their work. 
and people went to work happy, but also their profits almost doubled. And the point is that when we are empowered, we come alive. Jesus calls his disciples to go out to preach, to heal. Jesus empowers his disciples and he empowers you and me. And he says, go, make disciples of all nations. He doesn't restrict, but he allows creativity. He allows freedom. And church is a place where we can dream, where we can go. When God says go, we can say, yes, we are for that. There should be a place where dreams are formed, where they're reborn, where they're brought to life. We as a church have a dream of writing a new future for the church in Scotland. And I know many of us here have dreams of church planting, of seeing their area transformed, of seeing their workplace transformed. And we can see that through the transformational work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives his disciples intimacy. He gives them connectedness and he gives them empowerment. I see ice. And when you put ICE into a phone, often, if you're organized like me, well actually I'm not, but my little sister is, she's got ice numbers. And that means in case of emergency, phone this person. If I'm in trouble, if you find this phone, phone this person. They will get it back to the right owner. And Jesus says that. He says, in case of emergency, call on me. For anyone that wants that gift, there is a direct line for you and the creator of the universe. He's willing to rescue us. He's willing to share intimacy and friendship with us. He's willing to connect us to others and to empower us to live life to the full. And all we have to do is call that number. All we have to do is say what it says in Romans 10, which is for everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's true for you and that's true for me. Why don't we stand?